Welcome to the Queen of the Sciences podcast, conversations between a theologian and her dad. I'm your host, Sarah Henlicky wilson And I am Paul R. Henlicky. Today on the show, we are taking up the delightful and uplifting topic of the wrath of God. You have heard us mention the wrath of God on occasion before. We are advocates of it, not in the direct sense of thinking it is an awesome thing to be the object of, but that it is an ongoingly important biblical and theological concept for us to maintain. Not the most popular position nowadays, unless you're a total raving lunatic. So we are going to try to give the non-raving lunatic account of why the wrath of God still matters to us today. Dad, you are the expert in uh, repopularizing um, discounted notions without being a total raving lunatic. So why don't you lead us into the the wrath of God this morning? Well, first, let me begin with two recent examples of the stark raving lunatics on the wrath of God, Uh, one on the political left and the other on the political right. Uh, I'll start with those on the political right. After Hurricane Katrina in 2007, was that? 2005, I don't remember exactly, that devastated New Orleans. Uh, the televangelist Pat Robertson and the televangelist Jerry Falwell both attributed the destruction to New Orleans uh, to the sinfulness of that city and said it's an illustration of God uh, punishing New Orleans for its sins. That's the stark raving lunatics on the political right. I remember that when when Haiti was struck by the earthquake, there was a similar thing. It was even because the Haitian slaves had rebelled against their overlords 200 years earlier. <laughs> that was why they oh got hit by the earthquake. Wow. Yeah, the, this is the classical complaint we have about blaming the victims of natural catastrophes as if the God of the Bible were Zeus uh, throwing thunderbolts at people who... Uh, offend his narcissistic ego. Uh, So that's one example. Another example, equally serious, on the political left was the pastor in Chicago named Jeremiah Wright, who was the pastor of the Southside Chicago African-American Church where Michelle and Barack Obama attended. And he was captured on tape preaching God's damnation on America. And in a, that really enthusiastic uh, African-American style, God damn America, you know. And this was then, of course, uh, uh, propagated during Barack Obama's presidential campaign, which even caused him to disassociate from that uh, church and that ministry. And so how easy it is, of course, to use the idea of the wrath of God to scapegoat or to ante up in religious extremity one's own angry political judgments. And that's an example of exactly what we don't want to do in discussing this difficult topic today. Right. And it could easily be extended to one's outrage over ethical topics as well um, and extreme um, accusations regarding abortion or the death penalty or military interventions. You know, you can have a reaction of of burn the whole thing down, whatever whatever extreme you stand on in the name of God. Right. Burn, baby, burn. Yeah, that's exactly right. Whether from the political left or the political right, 
just a, a way of saying I'm really angry with big capital letters, and that means G-O-D, right? right? Yeah. So we, that we, we don't want to go anywhere near that, and I'll give some reasons later to explain why. The theological conception of the wrath of God is dialectically necessary, and that's a very dense expression. But it's dialectically necessary to proclaim the miracle of God's reconciliation of the world through the cross and resurrection of Christ. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. We await his Son from heaven, Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. These early expressions of the Christian message from the uh, pen of the Apostle Paul are quite familiar to us, but you have to notice that contained in them as death is the presupposition to resurrection, so also the wrath of God is the presupposition to the reconciliation accomplished through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. I see. So if Paul is not proclaiming resurrection in order to say, you're not going to die, as the Corinthians misunderstood, then logically and in parallel there, just because Paul proclaims the reconciliation or redemption of God does not mean that there is no wrath whatsoever or that it is totally done. It will be um, transformed and transcended, but it is not eliminated. I would say so. And you can't you know, one of the tricks that a lot of modern theology plays is to treat these simply as religious ideas uh, that have evolved with human culture and then progressively get left behind in the dustbin of history. And so, like we talked about in our recent discussion of Judaism, uh, you have the idea that the wrathful God uh, of the Old Testament uh, was belongs to a primitive stage of history that has now been left behind with the superior Christian idea of the nice, meek, loving God reflected in the nice, meek, hippie, flower-loving, tree-hugging Jesus. Right. So right. you just you have to you have to realize that this is a, a another false route. This this way of treating theological notions as if they're nothing but historical ideologies or conceptions that we can arrange in some kind of progressive teleology or order or something like that. And man, there is always profound anti-Judaism lurking behind that. Always, always. Right. Yes, I think so. Uh, I think so. So at the end of the, early in the 20th century, H. Richard Niebuhr, uh, I think in the 1920s, published his study, The Kingdom of God in America. And he was one of these brilliant uh, analysts who realized the massive influence in mainline American Protestantism, which was still culturally dominant, especially in the second half of the 19th century, in which these idealistic theologies uh, coming from German liberal Protestantism had been fully adopted in America, going back all the way, by the way, to the transcendent, what the Americans who called themselves the transcendentalists. That's Ralph Waldo Emerson and his uh, circle of friends, all of whom 
adopted the Kantian revolution in philosophy and conceived of God now as this noumenal idea, this positing of an ideal, so that the uh, task becomes building the kingdom of ends on earth. That's Kant's language, building the kingdom of ends on earth, uh, which was then interpreted as the meaning of Jesus's belief in the kingdom of God, which totally strips it of its apocalyptic content. That for Jesus, the kingdom of God is poised against regnum diaboli, against the kingdom of the devil. It's an apocalyptic conflict, not an idealistic progression or something like that. So if the wrath of God is only idea, then inevitably God is only an idea too. And the love of God is only an idea. Right. Yeah. Worse yet. Yeah. Yeah. Which is why you have so many contemporary developments in liberal Protestant theology which are perfectly comfortable with uh, post-theistic conceptions. I mean, I don't know how they pull it off anymore. But, you know, if it's just an idea that can be transcended, well, then let's transcend even the personal deity of the Bible, the theistic notion of divine transcendence, you know, and just keep pushing, uh, pushing the envelope, trying to get more and more progressive. <laughs> well, I mean, at that point, you're just you're just exiting the church, ultimately, and you're not going to stay an actual self-identified Christian theologian much longer. Well, I think that's, uh, there's a lot of modern Protestant theology that bears witness to that trajectory. So H. Richard Niebuhr wrote this study, The Kingdom of God in America, in which he analyzed these developments in American preaching with a lot of empirical evidence. And, of course, he was part of the neo-Orthodox renewal in the 1920s, coming stemming from Karl Barth and, and Paul Tillich and uh, Rudolf Bultmann, the dialectical theology in Germany. And Trelsch uh, wrote these famous words, which I have frequently cited at the conclusion of his book, Kingdom of God in America. A God without wrath brought men without sin, into a kingdom without judgment, through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. Wow, that's H. Richard Niebuhr? That's H. Richard Niebuhr. And of course, this was a savage parody of the saccharine preaching of the liberal Protestant pulpits uh, in his time in the 1920s. Now, it's not because we enjoy, as you said at the beginning, uh, thinking about the wrath of God, but because we're swept away, we're overtaken, we're captivated by God's reconciling work in Christ. The way I like to put this in my theology is God surpassing God. That it's not simply that the human being changes its relationship to the deity. Of course, that happens. Faith in, in Repentant faith is transformative of us. It, it, it turns us into new and theological subjects from the old Adam to the new creation in Christ. It is transformative to us. We do change in Christian faith. But all the more important is the idea that God, the, our creator, in his history with us, God in person changes God. I think I, that's a, a very bald and perplexing statement, perhaps. But what else can it mean that God, 
spared not his own son, but gave him up for us all. If we take that statement with theological depth and seriousness, that in itself means that the divine and holy Son of God, who knew no sin, was made to be sin, himself fell under the curse of the law, himself experienced divine forsakenness in that awful moment on Golgotha, and as the creed says, descended into hell, knowing in person, on behalf of all humanity, the wrath of God. That's what it means. Now, that would be a horrible thought, an intolerable thought, if that's where the story ends, which is why, of course, it's, it doesn't end there. And the gospel <laughs> is the resurrection of the crucified one, which, as we said recently in a podcast, that's God the Father recognizing his own love for humanity in his sin and death-shrouded son's full solidarity with the rejected uh, and lost of the world. So, so let me just reflect back to you briefly on this. So, I mean, the first thing that's clear is that if the, the, to talk about the wrath of God is to definitely have a cross-centered theology, which, you know, that is, that is New Testament theology. But it means that you really can't get very far with um, accounts of the crucifixion that are purely demonstrative or illustrative of some generic idea of God's love or... God's willingness to take our hatred, um, uh, but but um, exempting any, like you said, any change within God or God surpassing God within it. You just, it, it's kind of a non-starter. And I mean, I don't, I don't think the cross is anywhere near adequately adequately accounted for. If you if you remove all that is, let's say, metaphysical or transcendent about it, and make it purely a an example of human violence, but God can take it or something. But I like, I mean, I, I, as you say, it's not its not a good word. The cross is not a good word. It isn't a good word anyway, but it can't even be made to serve a good purpose unless it is followed up by the resurrection. And what that puts me in mind of is um, the, uh, the short Easter hymn, which has probably formed me more than all the other Easter hymns that begins, he is a risen glorious word. Now reconciled is God, my Lord. And I remember once having a, a small quarrel <laughs> with another theologian over this, who was kind of appalled by the idea that at the resurrection, God is reconciled. Uh, and what he heard in that was somehow the implication, and, and I think this is where people often get tripped up here, is that until Jesus was either was raised or rose from the dead, God the Father remained steadfastly, unmovably angry at people, and then somehow Jesus the Son, the loving one, had to talk him out of it. Um, and, of course, you know, <laughs> we don't want to go there. Yeah. So I think, it, I think it's important to clarify here that when we talk about the wrath of God, we're not talking about, like, an, an intra-divine controversy over what we do with these rotten sinners. <laughs> no, and I think that's one way of reading Anselm that has been particularly particularly bad. I'm not sure it's even what Anselm really means. We had an episode on Anselm some time back. Right, and if you don't have a fully Trinitarian theology so that it's utterly clear that in Christ God took upon himself the sin of the world and its his righteous wrath upon it. It's not like God othered the punishment on a human scapegoat. In right. the person of the Son, the Holy Trinity took upon itself 
into its own internal life, this great schism. So theologians like Mer- uh, Jürgen Moltmann have suggested, that, and, and um, uh, Kazu Kitamori have suggested that we need to think as well of the passion of the Father uh, in this uh, confrontation between the Father and the Son on Good Friday and so forth. But let's move on from there. I think we've already made we've made the point that you can't even think about the wrath of God without, in a Christian way, apart from your Eastern knowledge of the reconciliation that God has accomplished in Christ. And so thinking about the wrath of God is always a retrospective reflection back upon our uh, sinful, lost and sinful condition. And uh, what God in his goodness and righteousness uh, was doing in order uh, to drive us into the arms of, of Christ. Can I ask, when you say retrospective, do you mean theologically or experientially? Because I can see, you know, that people might know about God or believe in God, but only experience God as wrathful, or on the other hand, just experience general horror in the world, and then only after coming to know the gospel be able to identify that as somehow having its source in the wrath of God. So what do you mean precisely when you say it's a retrospective reflection? Yeah, we're we're doing theology here. We're trying to talk about how to understand the biblical notion of the wrath of God. Pastorally, I think you make a disaster when you say to a person experiencing Say, theologically, as a pastor, you diagnose this person is suffering under the wrath of God. You know, I think that that's a, a, a discernment that one makes uh, when the, uh, someone has, is reaping what they have sown, uh, when it's manifest that their behavior, attitude, unbelief, all rooted in unbelief, has brought a disaster upon themselves and others whom they love, and life is falling apart. And in our society where depression and suicide are so rampant, I think pastors encounter this all the time. Uh, Now, of course, what you don't say to that person is, aha, you are under the wrath of God. Let me tell you what's going on. You don't do that. You don't preach your 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 theology, but you use your theology to know what to do. And the worst thing in the world you can do is say you have the wrong idea of God or you have the wrong interpretation of your experience. You have to let the bad experience be bad and give them, pastorally give people the grace and the safety to own up to the difficulty that they find themselves in. Enable them to tell the truth about themselves. And you do that by being an utterly gracious, unconditionally gracious presence in their lives that creates that safe space of trust in which people, for the first time perhaps in a long time, can be truthful about their lives. So, yes, no, you don't say, oh, you're under the wrath of God and clobber somebody like that. That, that That's using theology in an entirely unpastoral way. But you are to understand that when people deeply experience the negative, you're not tongue-tied 
And what you do there is instead of in trying to ide ideologize them, indoctrinate them out of their experience, what you do as a pastor is insert Jesus Christ in him crucified. That's your job. That's what you do. You put Christ, the one who was crucified, you put that one, you bring that one right into the thick of that person's experience. And with the earnest prayer that the Holy Spirit will do the work of comfort and consolation that comes with that insertion of Jesus Christ. So that it becomes for your parishioner in that situation an historical event, not a re-education out of a wrong idea of God, but the event of encountering the crucified and risen Christ as he comes into solidarity with that person in pain. How does that sound? That sounds excellent. Let it stand for the record. Okay. That, is our, that is our pastoral wisdom on the wrath of God. Okay. Okay, so let's move on from Niebuhr then. I just wanted to tell a personal anecdote about how I learned about these things and dealt with them, going all the way back to my uh, seminary days when uh, I took a Hebrew exegesis course on the prophets Amos and Hosea. And I didn't know Amos and Hosea from squat at this time <laughs> in my life. I, I remember some kind of cheesy comic strip that was shown to us at Concordia, Bronxville, about Amos as, quote, God's angry man, end quote. <laughs> And it was pretty. It was pretty cheesy. And of course, I didn't. I, I really didn't know what to expect. But I had learned Hebrew, and doggone it, I wanted to do some Hebrew exegesis. So I took this course, and I think the professor's name was Arlen Aaron. I'm trying to remember exactly what his name was, but he was the guy who got in all the trouble with the fundamentalists in the Missouri Synod because he expressed doubts about the historicity of Jonah being swallowed by a whale. And uh, he was just the target of a lot of that uh, fundamentalist fury. Hmm. Uh, but he was a very good Hebrew uh, teacher. And um, so we worked through the translation, first of Amos, then of Hosea. And as I was working through Amos, I said, where's the gospel there's no gospel. There's absolutely no gospel at all in this whole book. <laughs> and it was really quite a stunning. And then, of course, in terms of historical criticism, at the very last couple of verses of Amos, there's some promise about a restoration. And the commentary we were working with and the professor said, well, this is a later redactional addition to the uh, to the original oracles. The original oracles had no word of hope at all. So, wow. you know, this was like, wow, this is talk about God's angry man. How about Amos's angry God? <laughs> yeah, right, right. Wow. Hard to stomach. <laughs> but it's also one of the profoundest books I've ever read. I ever read in seminary, studied closely in seminary, because there are two episodes in it, uh, several episodes in it in particular that are so striking. At one point, Amos preaches, uh, why do you desire the day of the Lord? He's talking to the pious sons of Israel in the northern kingdom who are expecting the day of the Lord to come as the vindication of their imperialism. 
Why do you desire the day of the Lord? It is darkness, not light. As if a man put his, rested his hand on the wall and a serpent came forth and bit him. <laughs> there are these, these very powerful ironies where rhetorically he, Amos' preaching sucks the people in with their pride and presumption and then flips the table on them. Did not the Lord call Israel up from Egypt? Well, yeah, he did. And the Philistines from Kaftor, the arch enemies of the Israelites, mm. also had their own callings by God. And the most important little narrative is that evidently Amos came to the sanctuary at Bethel and was preaching his oracles against the northern kingdom at Bethel. And the priests there came out against him and said, go away and prophesy somewhere else. Don't you know this is the king's sanctuary? Mm. As if as if Amos's job was to be a sycophant, flattering the powers that be. But here you have the origins of our cliche about the prophet who speaks truth to power. He goes right to the religious heart of the northern kingdom and, and calls it a sham. Martin Luther King Jr. used to quote Amos all the time. Ah, uh, yeah. He did. And it was this devastating passage about, I hate, I despise your solemn assemblies. They make me sick. I won't listen to your songs and your musical instruments, but let justice roll down like a river and righteousness like a mighty stream. Yeah, I can hear his voice. Yeah, from that famous Yeah, you can talk, hear that, yeah. right, right, right. And the other thing I really like about Amos uh, is a very simple passage that the Apostle Paul picks up on in Romans. At one point, Amos says, hate what is evil, love what is good. Paul in Romans 12 says, let love be sincere, hate what is evil. Why do I love that so much? Because in our culture, the opposite of love is deemed hate. But in the Bible, the opposite of love is indifference or apathy. Now, there can be unrighteous hate, but there can also be righteous hate. And that's something we're going to have to get into now to understand what the wrath of God really is. Um, I have no objections in popular discourse to calling out haters, just like I tried to call out Jerry Falwell and Pat Robertson and Jeremiah Wright at the beginning of this podcast, uh, people who are using religiously language about God in order to articulate their own uh, hatred. You know, that should be exposed and, and, and critiqued, absolutely. Or to terrorize, you know, to, to ramp up the yeah, ramp up the stakes so that people who aren't otherwise paying attention, you know, get their kind of cosmic willies and then cow, you know, kowtow or, or uh, bow down before the person who's raving the most convincingly. Yeah, right. Exactly. The saccharine theology of a mainline Protestantism in America wants to say that God is loving, nice and kind, but basically powerless to do much about it. That's why uh, it's God's work, but it's our hands that are going to make it happen. 
Right. Well, it's kind of like apologizing for God not constantly intervening in every evil situation to make things better. It seems like the only way I think I think the rationale is the only way you can go on defending God's existence or love at all is by claiming his powerlessness. Otherwise, surely in this, that or the other case, he would have done something. And, you know, as a, a form of protest against God, I I I agree with that. It's the uh, drawing it to a some sort of certain metaphysical conclusion that God is powerless, which just makes God to cease being God. I don't think that's where the problem can possibly be solved. No, if, if, if that's the solution, we are indeed hopeless. We are indeed hopeless. Because in its long history, humanity has not morally progressed much at all. Now, that once I want to come back to an ancient Latin uh, church father named Lactantius. And Lactantius would have been as famous as Augustine, but Augustine overshadowed his reputation. And most uh, contemporaries have never even heard of Lactantius, though in his age he was called the Christian Cicero, and his Latin style was as elegant as Cicero's and emulated and rediscovered even in the Renaissance as a great Latin stylist. And Lactantius was a, an apocalyptic theologian, so that gives you a signal about <laughs> why I find him interesting. Dead uh, giveaway. And dead giveaway. Uh, and basically, he had developed a very profound critique of the Roman Empire. He had, like Augustine later, a century later, Lactantius had risen uh, through the ranks to becoming a great orator in Rome and, in fact, was hired by Constantine to be the tutor of his own son uh, in the period before Constantine converted to Christianity. It was during this period that, having risen to the top, just like Augustine did later, having risen to the top in the Roman imperial hierarchy, that he became disillusioned with the whole uh, militaristic slave society that Rome was. And he lost his uh, uh, faith in it. And that's when he discovered his uh, new faith in the kingdom of God uh, being brought into the world by, by Jesus Christ apocalyptically, not progressively. And he uh, then gave up his uh, imperial positions and became a scholar that drifted from patron to patron. But he wrote some really powerful treatises, and one of them was De Ira Dei, Dei, Concerning the Wrath of God. And it's a, a brilliant defense of the passion of the God of the Scriptures. The God of the Bible is passionate, and he cares passionately for his creation. And because he cares passionately for his creation, he passionately opposes the uh, wickedness that ruins his creation. Uh, let me just read a little quotation here from Lactantius. Anger is simply a motion of God's mind rising up to correct faults. It is not rage. It does not seek revenge for injury. It is in no way a fault. Anger is righteous, rational, and just, and because it is necessary for human well-being, it should in no way be criticized or taken away from God or man. 
So what Lactantius is saying is that anger is the strange work of divine love, something that Lutherans ought to recognize, opus alienum. If loving, love-achieving mercy uh, for the offender is the proper work of God, love opposing the offender is the alien or improper work of God. It's the self-same God of love in his goodness, doing exactly what Amos and Paul require. Hate what is evil, love what is good. Let love be sincere. Hate what is evil. So could you say in a way, to to use more uh, modern language, that the wrath of God is an emergent property of God's nature in response to the sin and destruction of God's good creation. Yeah, and then you could also say that mercy is the new emergent property of God, surpassing the old emergent property of God, which is wrath, something right. like that. Right. Oh, that's really interesting. So that, I mean, that's, as you've argued in Divine Complexity and elsewhere, that God, in a basically has a history that if God takes the risk of allowing there to be beings other than himself and wills other than what he wills, then there will be an ongoing responsiveness because God is a living God and not a a dead or static or unmoved mover kind of God. Right, right. Yeah, and and the recent dust-up Sarah over virtual communion, um, I tried to point to why I think this theology of the wrath of God is so important, especially as we interpret this catastrophe of pestilence, this coronavirus that has brought the entire globe to an economic standstill and is threatening all sorts of destructive consequences. And uh, in one piece, I wrote something like this. Our greedy individualism is the chief reason why we have become so allergic to the utterly biblical motif of the wrath of God manifesting in catastrophic events like famine and pestilence. These revisit our ecological sins back upon us. Indiscriminate rhetoric against, quote, blaming the victim, close quote, even when the inevitable consequences of socially irresponsible behavior befall us, keeps us tongue-tied theologically, when in fact theological interpretation of disaster like the current one in the pandemic matters immensely. It matters not for the cheesy purpose of defending God or the vicious purpose of scapegoating, Indeed, when it's clear on the level of individual life that there is a perpetrator and a victim, of course it is morally obtuse to blame the victim for the victimization. But something like famine or pestilence, this epidemic is not happening on the level of individual life, but of social life with its trans-individual forces. Now, I think that's the, the... the, the virtue of the biblical doctrine of the wrath of God, and especially when you look at something like Amos's diagnosis of the sins of the northern kingdom that have brought this catastrophic threat 
of the wrath of God that will dethrone the kingdom in the north and send its people into exile. The diagnosis of social injustice and covenant infidelity, uh, things that go hand in glove, uh, uh, that diagnosis uh, is uh, what the doctrine of the wrath of God enables one powerfully uh, to execute. So if I let me let me just make a, a comment here. So then to continue the thoughts, could we say that certain kinds of catastrophes are then the emergent property of human sin mounting up to, you know, um, sow a harvest and then reap its rewards? And if that's the case, then we would have to also carefully distinguish between um, catastrophes that actually are the harvest of human sin, like you might say in the case of a pestilence or maybe a famine due to um, mismanagement or government abuse, but not catastrophes like the earthquake in Haiti, which obviously has nothing whatsoever to do with human sin or cause causality. Yeah. I, of course, the, you, when you get down in the weeds on this, of course, that's where the rubber hits the road. And I think you had a, we had a, uh, one of our auditors uh, actually, actually ask a question about this. Why don't you pose that for us? Yeah, I'd like to do that because I think that, it, it, like you said, it, it, the devil is in the details unless God is in the details. And so I think that's one of the reasons people are allergic to even bringing up this topic, because what if you so desperately misjudge the situation? Anyway, yes. Yeah, so thank you, Logan, who wrote in with this question that was interested in the wrath of God generally. So that uh, gave us the excuse to talk about a topic we wanted to anyway. But he says, you mentioned the possibility of speaking to the notion of God's judgment being manifested in catastrophe. I don't in principle disagree with the premise. But for it to provide actual direction, I would want to hear how we would go about discerning which of our many and various actual sins was incurring judgment. If you believe God is judging you, but you don't know specifically what for, it leaves you in the dark as to what concrete reforms God is calling us to. Right? Great question, Logan. So thanks. Uh, go ahead, Dad. What do you say? Well, I think, you know, a couple of things here. First of all, it's not, we, we are not Amos and we are not Paul. We are not prophets and we are not apostles. We are students of the prophets and the apostles. So I, I don't think we can uh, do literally what they did, but we can only appropriate what they did uh, humbly and uh, in a, hopefully in a discerning way. Let's, let's make that point first of all. Uh, and one of the ways that that's different, especially in pastoral preaching, and that's what we're talking about here, pastors preaching to their congregations, is that they are not entitled like Nathan to David to go to someone and say, thou art the man. It's not their job to be God's cop. They are pastors who have an obligation to preach the law and the gospel. And what that means, when you call people to repentance, you depict or you, you, with the guidance of a scripture text, you depict something like the message of the book of Amos or the first chapter of Paul's letter to the Romans. And you basically propose to people, does this shoe fit? Do you see yourself here? Is this who you are? Uh, who are you? Are you Peter who denies? Are you Judas who betrays? Are you one of the others who flees? 
where do you fit in this story? And you don't do that in a terroristic way that you're trying to, to uh, as you said earlier, terrify people. But you do that, again, in the context of the gospel message of reconciliation, which is calling us now in the space of grace that's been created by the resurrection of the crucified. That's calling us to look deeply into the dark places of our lives. Yeah, I think it would only be, I mean, it would be terrorizing if there was no possibility of hope or reconciliation at all. And so what you're proposing here is a kind of preaching that is saying, don't, in a way saying to people, don't let the wrath of God be the last word in your life because it doesn't have to be. There is another word of God, the the surpassing of the wrath with the mercy. And, but the the transit from wrath to mercy involves this this honesty which was classically called repentance of you said looking into the dark places and and being honest about them you know when i was preaching on the sermon of the mount at the beginning of of 2020 i you know i was really struggling with this because uh as we talked about in our our episode but i found even more in preaching it there are really terrifying aspects to it and it does just pose the stark question of who are you what kind of person are you and i remember in my last sermon i basically said, I really wish I could make this easier for you. I prefer to preach the gospel every single Sunday, but if the crucified and risen Lord is the one who preached the sermon, I can't just drop this sermon and say it didn't happen because I'm uncomfortable with where it's pushing us to. And I think that, um, I, I hope that is um, kind of the the presence of the wrath of God that you you bring. Again, not, not prejudging for people where they fall into it, but inviting them into hard and honest discernment about where the wrath of God is manifest in their lives. And now, we have some guidance on this, too, from the actual doctrine of the law. Um, the Decalogue forms a circle uh, that begins with true fear, love, and trust in God, and concludes with the prohibition of coveting. And these form a circle as if to say, if true fear, love, and trust in God is lacking, what fills the vacuum? Answer, greed, envy, coveting. And I think that's why when I wrote those words about the virtual communion controversy, I immediately wanted to point my fellow Americans to our culture of greedy individualism. And all the ways our greedy individualism affects the delivery of health care, affects the distribution of economic uh, risk and uh, uh, reward, uh, many different things can be interpreted, can be exposed when you actually take the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount Do not be like the Gentiles, asking, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? Your Father in heaven knows that you need all these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness, and all these other things will be provided. So do we believe that? And if we don't believe that, are there consequences of our disbelief? So it's not like we're we're up against... uh, um, a blank uh, wall here, tongue-tied, not knowing, having any guidance about how to get into discernment of what this pandemic is doing to us. This pandemic is uh, stealing from 
the younger generation whom I have made a living teaching for these many years, it's stealing their so-called American dream. We have to think about this. In 1999, uh, after the impeachment of President Clinton, you had the dot-com failure and the stock market crashed. Several years later, you had 9-11, and the nation was sent reeling by this double whammy. Uh, uh, and it took 10 years to get out of the hole. And, you know, Osama bin Laden, I think, is, is smiling in his grave at the crazy Americans who have spent $10 trillion trying to avenge 9-11. And ultimately, after all of it failed. But they've dug themselves into a deep, deep economic hole. And then in 2009, the Wall Street greed uh, brought about the collapse of the bank and mortgage banks because of their sh shorting on those, betting on those loans to fail, and nearly brought the country uh, to its knees, the economic system to collapse. That was 10 years ago, and now the pandemic. And in a short time of two months, the country has added another $4 trillion to its debt with no end in sight. Isn't it time to start thinking that the judgment of God is falling upon the American empire? Not in a, the Jeremiah right way or a, a Pat Robertson kind of way, but in a serious and sober way. What has gone wrong with our culture? Yeah, and I was just commenting on the on the recent economic disasters too. The consistent pattern of refusing to let um, consequences naturally unfold on people who have gambled irresponsibly. The you know the too big to fail and the continual bailouts of industries that have greedily and irresponsibly. Well, I don't want to get too deep into the, the policy implications here because that is not our area of expertise. But I think what you're, you're saying is that a, a sober assessment of failure is a very salutary thing and not a grandstanding one. I mean, I'm always, I have to admit, I'm always a little bit nervous about the uh, speaking truth to power thing because my experience of seminary was that everybody was desperately eager to be a prophet because that that's really cool <laughs> to speak truth to power. And, you know, I just couldn't help but thinking in a, you know, almost biblicistic way, like, but you don't have the prophetic call that Amos or Hosea or Isaiah or Paul did. So can you, can you, you know, when you'd compliment somebody, thank you for those prophetic words. I mean, someone's even said that to me before. And it always makes me really nervous, like, uh oh, I'm a pretender, I'm going to get caught. Don't call me that. <laughs> well, I, th I think the important thing to say here is that we're not prophets or apostles, we're theologians. It's right. a, definitely a lower order of magnitude. Yes, indeed. <laughs> Much lower. Right. We're, we're, we're servants of the message of Amos and Paul, not masters of them. Yeah. And we're inviting people into a penitent, self-critical reflection. That's the right way to use the idea of the judgment of God or the wrath of God. Luther put it classically. This is the true people of God who brings to bear the judgment of the cross Upon, not the other guy, but upon themselves. Right, right. Upon themselves. It doesn't matter for, for the moment if the Chinese or the, what the Chinese or the Russians did to, in, to uh, start this catastrophe. What matters is what we have done 
to have this uh, catastrophe delivered upon us. In that sense, repentance is truly liberating because it delivers you from your illusions and lies about yourself, not to mention ongoing enslavement to those habits and the consequences that they're going to produce. A colleague of mine, I was asking him about an opinion article about reopening the economy and in which the argument was the economy is so crucially important it doesn't matter how many people will die from the virus. It's just we got to get the economy opened up again and things will sort themselves out. Now, uh, I don't want to get into the weeds there either, but he, my colleague pointed out to me, what is this idol, the economy, as if the economy was not something that couldn't be questioned? Now, again, uh, I don't want to get into socialist versus capitalist kinds of arguments here directly in a theology discussion. But in theology, there are no such sacred cows as the economy, or for that matter, the medical expert. There are no sacred cows. Everything is questionable. And that's our job as servants of the prophets and the apostles. Yeah. And I think I would just add to that to acknowledge the immense and growing complexity of our world. I was just listening to something about the pandemic that said that uh, basically implied that in like India with its economic shutdown, actually more lives are going to be saved from traffic accidents and air pollution than from COVID-19 because of the standstill. <laughs> you know, and right, that's, right. that just completely broke my brain <laughs> that, that the that's unintended right. consequence would be so salutary. So I, I don't even... I don't even know how to think about that. And again, that's not our domain of expertise. A, the, a theologian friend wrote me in an email, no cars, nature is healing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's weird, isn't it? It's really weird. But on the other hand, how many, you know, how many people are going to die of a closed economy, not directly from COVID-19, but from uh, hunger or inability to buy medicine or, you know, all sorts of other things. It's so, it's so hard to untangle. Just uh, one last thought on the prophets before we come start coming to a conclusion here. In that seminary course, then we went on to translate the book of Hosea. And that's the famous book about the Lord telling Hosea to marry the prostitute Gomer as a living parable of uh, his frustration with Israel's infidelities and so forth. But in the 11, as we worked through all this, it was a very interesting book, Hosea. Uh, but I just want to talk about the 11th chapter of Hosea very quickly. Because here too, just like Amos, the wrath of the Lord against an unfaithful Israel has been building throughout the letter, uh, the book, until you get to this remarkable passage in Hosea 11. And when I was translating it, I was struck by the gendered use of language, which I'll explain in a minute. Because remember, up until this point, the illustration of the Lord's anger at Israel has been Hosea's marriage to a prostitute, an unfaithful wife. Uh, and so, in this 11th chapter, speaking in the name of the Lord, uh, Hosea writes, oh, I'm I'm going to destroy you. I'm going to end it. I'm going to deliver you into exile. That's the end of it. Pause. My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? My heart recoils within me. 
for I am God, and not Hebrew ish, a male. I am God, not a male. The Holy One in your midst, and I will not come to destroy. This, for me, is, was the genesis of my idea of God surpassing God. This, this Umsturz in German, Oswald Bayer calls it an Umsturz, this upheaval, this overthrow within God's own heart, uh, this dramatic uh, transition from the wrath of love to the mercy of it. And where does the gendered language come in? Ish. He, he doesn't. He doesn't oh, say. Oh, I see. Um, he, he doesn't use the word for Adam for human being. He uses the word for male. Ish. I see. So I'm not an unfaithful dude. Right. I'm not a jealous husband. I am God, not a offended uh, husband. Uh, male. Uh, right, right, I'm right. the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come to destroy. Yeah, God's jealousy is not like the jealousy of an abusive husband, right? Yeah, and I think that's where so many misguided critiques of atonement theology, uh, especially as we talked about in our episode on Anselm, uh, accuse Anselm of portraying God as a a narcissistic feudal lord who's... uh, Honor, a need for public honoring, requires uh, some kind of uh, revengeful expiation. And we've heard Lactantius precisely denying that. That's not what the wrath of God is about. The wrath of God is an act of love against what is against love, right? And here, here too, we move that even to a profounder level in which uh, foreshadowed in Hosea 11 and and finally realized in the cross and resurrection of Christ. Right. That passage from Hosea is also one of the ones that inspired Kitamori, who talked about the pain of God, as we talked about in our episode last year. That umstorts, yeah. Well, as we wrap this up here, this uh, wide-ranging attempt to grapple with the wrath of God, I just I, there's something I've been ruminating on lately, and I just wanted to run it past you and see what you thought, see if it's useful for our listeners too. So, as I've been just you know kind of continually working my way through Scripture, and and it's funny how the Bible can be so familiar and so alien at the same time. But one thing that that keeps emerging for me is that it seems in both testaments that God is nearly infinitely willing to forgive infractions of his law. Like he's very fierce about the law, you know, he's very clear about what is right and wrong and very, um, you know, has uh, makes no bones about judging his people when they fail to abide by the law. But basically he will infinitely forgive. The restoration is, is infinitely possible for breakers of the law. But where it seems to be the... I don't know, the gateway to damnation really is not refusal or violation of God's law. It's refusal or violation of God's grace. So it's precisely God's continual reaching out, offering to restore, make you new, show you his infinite mercy and love that mysteriously elicits greater hatred, refusal, recoiling than God's law itself. And that seems to me to be a a very disturbing and very deep 
mystery. And I mean, I guess the point is after law, there can be forgiveness and restoration. But what is there after grace? There's nothing after grace. There's nothing after God's mercy. And I suppose the point seems to be if that you insist on despising God's grace, then what can God be for you but terror? And it seems to me like the, the especially the darkest scenes in the book of Revelation are precisely depicting God's last ditch bid to get the attention of those who refuse, who break his law and refuse his grace, speaking in the language of terror, because if you're at that point, it's the only language you could possibly understand, but even then it might not be enough. So it seems to me that there's kind of, I guess what what I'm grappling with is the idea that um, finally dare I say it, damnation is not God's will or design ever. But if you insist on refusing his grace and mercy, then what can God's presence be to you but damnation? You could be in heaven and it would be hell because you were forced to be in the presence of the merciful God that you despised and rejected. So I don't know. What do you think of that? Well, I think, Sarah, that's isn't that something very similar to the conclusion I came to in the systematic theology, where I went back and forth over the gospel of the objective atonement in Christ, uh, uh, the Lutheran doctrine of the universal scope of the atonement, uh, which was posed, poised against the limited atonement of the Calvinists uh, in the 17th century, and uh, which then clearly implies if God seriously intends for all to be saved and has provided for the salvation of all uh, through the death and resurrection of his son, um, must we not say that God's grace is God's final word? I think the answer to that question is yes, but is it our final word? Mm, That's the mm. question you're posing. Yeah. It's a, I call this the Johannine problem. In J- John 3, after the discussion with Nicodemus, uh, the narrator, the evangelist, uh, comments uh, that God sent his son in the world, not that the world should be judged through him, but that it might be saved. Yet men prefer darkness because their deeds were evil. Yeah. <clears throat> so there you have exactly the conundrum that that you and I, I think, are left with uh, as preachers of the and teachers of the gospel. I think we must always maintain with all our hearts and passion God surpassing God, the finality of grace, the universal scope of grace under no uh, uh, divine conditions. This is what God is decided to be thanks to the resurrection of the crucified Jesus. That is his eternal commitment, fulfilling the umstrutz of Hosea 11. But where does that leave us? If we, if we uh, are those who uh, persistently, defiantly... I think any pastor has had this experience of someone... Uh, meeting someone in their pastoral ministry uh, who just says, don't want it, don't need it, no thank you. 
Yeah, I mean, I can I can have hope for someone like that. I I guess the problem in my imagination is what what perts what life circumstances or internal processes, mental, emotional would put a person beyond beyond the reach of grace, not because God doesn't want to reach them, but because they refuse to be reached. I think it feels outrageous because I think we'd want to say, well, something happened to them. Like something must have happened that made them this way. And it's unfair for them to be permanently alienated from God and everybody else because of the the trick of their genetic code, their environment, their trauma or whatever. And, you know, I, I, again, I think we can't but say that in God's grace, there there is infinite mercy for people who are who are harmed and victimized um, by external forces who don't want it. But it seems like ultimately there's there still is space for the person who, for whatever reason, whether it's trauma or just the satanic defiance of anyone being in a position of giving so that they have to be in the position of receiving to just say no. And, um, you know, is that, I suppose in certain traditions that would be called the freedom of the will to walk away from God. I don't think freedom is the right word for it at all. But, um, but on the other hand, it seems to me if you refuse that possibility, then you're ultimately refusing the immense worth of a human life, of a human soul, and wanting to make it all into a a comedy that in the end, well, when you go to heaven, God will just fix you. Well, you know, why not? Why doesn't God just fix us now? If that's what it comes down to it, it seems to me that God has accorded us with such reality in our persons, however fragile and mortal we are, that I I can't be any more satisfied with the solution of like the, the trick of making you into a lover of God at heaven heaven's gates um, any more than I'm satisfied with trying to figure out what could make a person finally hate and refuse all forms of mercy. I think we have to, Sarah, you know, in humility, we kind of just have to leave the discussion there. We were in no position to resolve this. I think we have to maintain both truths, that the, the grace of God is his final surpassing and universal word, and that human beings are finite, and as such, they have finite wills, and therefore they can make definite life decisions, and among those life de- decisions are those that defy and refuse his mercy. And yeah. can we resolve, can we square that circle? Can we resolve that? No, I don't think we can. No, I think we've hit one of the genuine limits of what uh, theology or earthly knowledge can give us. Well, later this year, I'm I'm going to be uh, publishing a book called Pearly Gates, which is a series of parables where I am grappling with exactly this issue. So uh, listeners who who uh, want to look at this more closely in, in a kind of paradigmatic um, fictional form can uh, look forward to reading that. Great. Yeah, I'll look forward to reading it, too. In fact, I think I have a draft of it sitting on my table waiting for me to get to now that I'm done grading for the semester. <laughs> I think that's also true. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. All right. Well, that was um, kind of uh, um, exhausting, (laughs) spiritually exhausting to talk through that topic. So uh, next time we're going to do something a little bit more fun. We're going to talk about French Orthodox theologian Elizabeth Baer-Sigel. Thanks for listening to the Queen of the Sciences podcast. For show notes and more, visit our website, queenofthesciences.com. To find out more about what we do, visit sarahhenlickywilson.com and paulhenlicky.com. Finally, please leave us a review on iTunes and tell a friend about the show.